You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Technology coming up on the program. Stability AI's breakout success faces threats as the startup confronts executive departures and concerns with its CEO. We'll bring you our Bloomberg reporting on the artificial intelligence startup. Plus, full coverage of earnings ahead from Palantir and Lucid's results to Rivian reporting after the bell. We got you covered. And we'll have an exclusive conversation with Spotify as the music streaming company further integrates AI technology into its products. All right, let's get straight to our top story. Stability AI is confronting a series of executive departures, struggles to raise funds at a target valuation, and an accusation it's not paid its bills on time or in full. After breakout success with the stable diffusion model, the startup now faces mounting risks to its edge in the booming field of generative, generative AI. The reporters who broke that story, Rachel Metz here in San Francisco, Mark Bergen out in London, join me now. Rachel, let's start with you. What what were the main takeaways that we learned in the course of our reporting? We spent several months looking into this story um, and speaking to a lot of different people, including Imad Mustak himself, who is uh, the person behind Stability AI. And we learned that we're looking at a company that seemed to come out of nowhere, um, has a CEO who tends to uh, make some blue sky comments um, about things that may not have happened yet. Um, and the company itself just seem, seems kind of uh, disorganized, I guess I would say. Um, and that was just a bit of, of what we noticed. So let's remind ourselves what put stability on the map. It was the, the stable diffusion model. What is that in basic terms? Stable diffusion is an image generation AI model. What it does is you type in a few words and it will give you back an image or a number of images. Um, it was actually initially developed by a group of German researchers and a research scientist from a startup called Runway. Um, Imad Mostak in mid-2022 approached this group of people to say, hey, I will support financially, I will pay for the computing power needed to improve this model to further train it. Okay, let's bring in Bloomberg's Mark Bergen, who's out in London, one of the co-bylines on this story. We were just showing pictures of, of, of Emad, the CEO of Stability. A lot of your reported reporting focused on him, his leadership of the company. What did you learn? 
Yeah, I mean, he's certainly a charismatic character. Uh, he has a history here in London. He's uh, worked for hedge funds. He's worked as a consultant. Um, prior to stability, his work was a lot of around uh, emerging markets and finance. He has some, a couple companies in the like, crypto and blockchain space. Uh, and then, as Rachel said, I mean, uh, Ahmad Mustak has even said in his own words on stage, we kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, certainly not a well-known entity in person here in London and in the Valley. Raised a lot of money, uh, over $100 million from some uh, pretty high established in investors. Uh, what we, you know, I think that he has really positioned his company and in, in its unique benefits around open source technology. And the, some investors we talked to, that's what got them really excited. And one of the reasons they invested is they, they thought there would be an open source alternative to the open AIs and Googles of the world. As we talk in the story, that's clearly been threatened by companies like Meta, uh, a lot of other newcomers that are also introducing competing sort of open source or open source like uh, software products, whereas what we're seeing in stability is a lot of this internal, internal turmoil while they're facing increased competition. So let's get to the specifics of that internal turmoil, turmoil, Rachel. One of the things you report is that they tried to raise funds at a specific valuation, four billion US dollars is what they were seeking. They weren't able to. Tell us about that and also some of the, the departures that they've had at the higher levels of the company. So the company raised um, over 100 million in funding late last year, um, right at the height of the success, the breakout success of Stable Diffusion. And since then, it hasn't announced a really large funding round. At that time, it was valued at a billion dollars. Um, and our reporting uh, at Bloomberg has indicated that it was trying to raise at $4 billion. Um, as far as we are aware, that hasn't yet happened. We just showed the some of the, the responses we got from Stability to our reporting, one stating that they've not had problems raising funds, Mark, and that actually that they said they weren't trying to raise funds. The other is that some of those departures in late July, according to Stability, uh, were they were let go rather than people that, that resigned of their own volition. Mark, what else have you learned? What are kind of some of the key factors that you report out in this story? Yeah, I think what makes them a really interesting company beyond the fact that uh, they have such a successful stable diffusion is they're trying to build these what they're called foundational models. Like they're trying to build this ground level infrastructure for generative AI, what a lot of investors and people in business believe is sort of the future of the internet and the next transformational economy. That is a very expensive industry, right? A very expensive enterprise. Open AI has raised over uh, 10 billion. We've seen startups like Rachel mentioned Runway raising a lot of money because it, this is a, requires a lot of research, it requires a lot of compute, it requires hiring top, top shelf, uh, very expensive engineers. Uh, we talked, uh, Mustak in our reporting shows that their revenue, so it was, he had previously sent out a tweet saying it was around 10 million run, run rate of revenue for the year. It's below that now in part because of their investments in research and development. So it's a very expensive business. It's something that a lot of their competitors have felt the need to be on this uh, constant ramp of, of fundraising uh, and the fact that they have, have not, I think, is, is certainly almost an outlier amongst their peers. Bloomberg's Rachel Mex, Mark Bergen, just really important reporting on a, on a company that we talk about often here on Bloomberg Technology. And now we find out the reality behind that name that has a lot of momentum. Thank you very much. All right, here on Bloomberg Technology, I want to get a quick check-in of the markets. Broadly, this is what we're looking at. NASDAQ 100 down 1.5%. We've seen 
the index level kind of treading water, but now some outsized declines, particularly in chip names. You look at the socks, we're down 2.6%. Uh, yields have come down, though. That's been the story, the sell-off in Treasuries. But the U.S. 10-year yield back down towards 4%. It had been at 4.2% last week. We can see it to pull, continue to pull back. Bitcoin, which has traded in quite a narrow range for the last two weeks or so, around $29,500 U.S. dollars per token, but pushing a little higher in the early part of this Tuesday session. The single name that we are watching is Palantir. We are off session lows when it comes to Palantir right now, down 7% on an intraday basis. We've been heading for our biggest decline since November. The story really clear. The market is not happy with the guidance that they gave. Uh, $2.21 billion for revenue in full year 23. Analysts have been seeing a range of 2.19 to 2.24. But it's about not walking the walk while the company is certainly talking to the talk. For more on Palantir's results, I want to bring in Mandeep Singh, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Technology Analyst. There's some real fighting talk from this, this company, and Alex Karp in particular, Mandeep, about the momentum they have driven by their artificial intelligence offering. But do you see any of that momentum show up in the financial guidance they gave? No, I, and I think it's too early for any company on the software side to really, uh, you know, guide in terms of the revenue impact when it comes to generative AI. They have called out a few use cases uh, around healthcare and ontology, which seem interesting, uh, but it's too early, I think, to say that, you know, it's going to drive a revenue growth as you see in the case of the likes of NVIDIA. And that's where, you know, with the model that Palantir has, which is not a recurring subscription model, unlike a lot of the cloud players, and when you're trading at 18 to 20 times sales, the kind of growth they are putting, it's, it's just not enough to, you know, sustain that uh, stock momentum. And I think that's why you're seeing that uh, reaction to that. This is what Alex Karp, the CEO of Palantir Technologies, told Bloomberg in an interview. We've got a good chance of becoming the most important software company in the world. What's your response to that, Mandy? Uh, too early, because uh, when you look at the partnerships that have been uh, announced so far, Snowflake has partnered with NVIDIA. What are they trying to do? They're trying to leverage you know, uh, NVIDIA's expertise when it comes to GPUs and accelerators and overlay that with the data lake product that they have at commercial enterprises. And that's, uh, I think, part where Palantir will find it challenging to grow because they have, you know, the customer base when it comes to the government side. On the commercial side, they don't have enough partnerships to drive that uh, momentum. And most of the software sales, if you think about it, happen, you know, uh, at, at that top level where you need Salesforce, where you need to constantly add customers, upsell. In fact, Palantir's net retention rate declined to 110%. They were around... 130%. That just goes to show they have some churn issues. And commercial side sequentially decelerated in the quarter. So clearly, uh, commercial side is where uh, they'll be challenged and they need partnerships. They need the service providers to drive that momentum. You wrote about Palantir's small customer base in your Bloomberg Intelligence React. The way, the way that they described it is that they have, for artificial intelligence platform, AIP, 100 uh, organizations as customers, but they're talking to 300. What do you make of their ability to convert 
but also, I guess, on the other side of the table, the willingness of big commercial orgs to invest in AI-driven data analysis. I think clearly there is an appetite and there is excitement around generative AI. The way enterprises typically go about this kind of stuff is they will do it in, you know, pilot and phases. And, uh, you know, you're going to wait for ROI to really allocate a huge budget for 2024, for example. And uh, as I said, it's a very competitive space. You are, you are competing with hyperscalers. You are competing with the likes of Snowflake, Databricks that have an army of salespeople, which I think Palantir will find to will find it hard to compete with. And what it does to their bottom line is they have no way but to keep hiring salespeople. So uh, I know they focus on profitability and they're doing a buyback. But to my mind, their expenses will have to grow, especially when it comes to sales and marketing, and that will limit any operating leverage you'll see in the near term. All right, a big thanks to Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Tech Analyst Mandeep Singh. got some fresh news just out this past hour. NVIDIA has announced an updated AI processor that gives a jolt, frankly, to the chip's capacity and speed. This is the company seeks to cement its dominance in what is a burgeoning market. NVIDIA says the super chip, which is called the GH200, is going to go into production in the second quarter of 2024. It's part of a new lineup of both hardware and software that NVIDIA's introduced focused on artificial intelligence. All right, another top story. Amazon will meet with FTC Chair Lena Khan next week in a final push to avoid an antitrust lawsuit over the e-commerce giant's marketplace for third-party sellers. That, according to Bloomberg sources. Joining us now, Adam Kavakovich, Chamber of Progress founder and CEO. What do you make of this? Either we are closer towards a show-off, a showdown between Amazon and the FTC, or we're close to avoiding one. What's your assessment? Well, I don't think we're close to avoiding one. And I think that's partly because Lena Khan has made her name as an Amazon critic, right? Her, her Really, her claim to fame originally was uh, her 2017 law review paper, which articulated you know, her view that, that while Amazon probably has pro-consumer justifications for its behavior, she believed that it was doing harm to, you know, rival retailers and to online sellers. And she, you know, again, six years ago called for an expansion of antitrust law to deal with what she viewed as problematic behavior. And so I think in some ways for her, this is a long time coming. Uh, though, and I think the way to think of this meeting next week that Amazon will have with the FTC, sometimes it's called the last rights meeting, it's really a formality. I think it's it's not gonna it's not likely to deter the FTC from bringing a lawsuit. I fully expect that they will bring a lawsuit. And candidly, based on the pace of these things, that lawsuit probably won't see the inside of a courtroom for about two years, which may be long after uh, Lena Khan has has left the FTC. I just want to remind our audience, Adam, that the Chamber of Progress is essentially a tech industry trade group, but antitrust is an area that you research and share policy perspective on regularly. When I was at Sun Valley a couple of weeks ago, the Microsoft Activision deal was firm in focus. And a lot of people were asking the question, why does the FTC keep picking fights that to many in the market, they, that they, they feel that they can't win? 
That's a great question. And I think that there are things that the FTC can do that are more practical wins. But I think it's very clear that Lena Khan has come into the agency as a critic of past FTC chairs. She feels that they've been too conciliatory. Um, and she wants to bring lawsuits. And I sort of call it a little bit of a YOLO strategy. I don't think she particularly cares if she loses those suits. I think this particular suit, based on the reporting and some of the leaks that have come out of the FTC about the things they're looking at, all of the behavior in question, Amazon, I think, has um, pretty compelling pro-consumer justifications for. But she's really seen a broader goal, which is to expand the range of antitrust law to encounter harms to suppliers and harms to sellers and harms to workers. And so I think she you know, is intent on bringing cases that she believes serve that mission. Um, and so I don't think the losing record deters her. I think she thinks, well, you know, we should try. And if we lose, then that might prompt Congress to change the laws. And I think that's pretty explicitly stated as a, as a strategy of hers. To the best of your knowledge, Adam, when they all go into a room and the FTC and Amazon sit down, what happens? I mean, what is it that, that what one side has to convince the other of? Well, it's interesting because I think if you look at the issues that the FTC has been investigating, these are the kinds of issues that in prior administrations and even in other countries might yield a settlement with Amazon rather than being taken to court. In fact, um, both the EU, the EU settled with Amazon on some of these issues related to Prime and what they call their Fulfillment by Amazon uh, program last year. And the UK is actually exploring a similar settlement. Um, if the FTC wanted to take a constructive approach here with it, with Amazon, I think they could. And frankly, I think there's probably room for compromise. But I don't think that's what's going to happen um, because she has, you know, pretty uh, publicly dismissed settlements again as being overly conciliatory, sort of trimming your trimming the FTC sales too much. And so I don't think I wouldn't expect that next week's meeting will be kind of an exchange or real uh, opportunity to head off a lawsuit. It's really much more of a formality. And I would expect that they'll the FTC will file their lawsuit pretty soon after those meetings. Since last we spoke, Adam, I, I guess the big development in the world of technology and antitrust has been the Warren Graham bill, um, basically the broad proposal for a, a new agency to regulate the technology industry. W what was the Chamber of Progress's response to that? We took a look at that. I think one of the things that I see a lot in tech policy debates is you see um, policymakers doing things like that where they say, well, we need a new agency, right? We need a new regulator. There are people who've called for that. What I think that does, it's, it's, it's a, frankly a little bit of a cheat um, because it puts aside the harder question of what behaviors policymakers want to ban, right? I think this Amazon case is a really good example. I think many people look at big tech companies and they think they've got a lot of power. We ought to regulate big, uh, big companies. Uh, I think that's something that is broadly popular. But then when you look at the details, right, this, de this, this case, I think, largely is going to be about Amazon Prime and around whether that bundle um, is pro-competitive. And so I think that, uh, you know, so I think, I think there's a gap between do we want more regulation? Sure, most people are for that. But then what, do we, what is the problem we want solved? And again, if you look at this Amazon situation, I don't think that's, that's something they're clamoring for change around.
So to remind our audience, what we've reported is that Chair Lena Khan and the agency's three other commissioners will meet with Amazon next week, according to sources. Both Amazon and the FTC declined to comment. Adam Kavakovic, Chamber of Progress founder and CEO, thank you very much. Now, coming up here on Bloomberg Technology, local NBA games could be coming to your streaming apps sooner than you think. We'll talk about the tech giants that want those rights and why they're for sale next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Time for Talking Tech. First up, superconductor stocks in South Korea plunged Tuesday after a US-based research center rebutted claims of a breakthrough in the technology. A condensed matter theory center at the University of Maryland challenged claims made by Quantum Energy Research Center that it synthesized a material known as LK99, which we reported on the show last week. And elsewhere, Walt Disney, Apple, Amazon, and YouTube have all expressed interest in streaming local NBA games. The media and tech giants are open to acquiring local rights held currently by Diamond Sports Group, but only if they can obtain a critical mass of teams. That according to Bloomberg sources here with the latest Bloomberg's Jerry Smith. Seems like a lot of names throwing their hat in the ring, Jerry, and a lot of it contingent on, on achieving a big package. What do we know? Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's something we've seen in the uh, sports media industry, the biggest change being these big tech companies, uh, Amazon, Apple, and YouTube, uh, really aggressively getting into this space. We have saw Amazon uh, with the, getting the NFL rights, uh, YouTube is Sunday ticket rights, and, and Apple has uh, MLS and, and baseball as well. So, you know, this is an opportunity now where the local sports rights, uh, in many cases, many of these teams are broadcast by a company called Diamond Sports Group that filed for bankruptcy in March. And one thing that uh, bankruptcy allows is for Diamond Sports to reject contracts uh, and not pay these teams. And when that happens, uh, the rights go back to the leagues, and then they become up for grabs. And these big tech companies, uh, as well as Disney, which owns ESPN, see an opportunity to swoop in and, and potentially uh, buy these rights. 
explain to us, Jerry, the distinction between sort of the, the local level and the nationwide level. There's a big audience in Bloomberg Technology that aren't even in the US, but the MBA is available uh, on many uh, cable streaming platforms. What is it specifically that the local rights give you? That's right. So there, there's two different really sets of rights in, in the U.S. There's the national rights, which are uh, owned by uh, uh, ESPN uh, and Warner Brothers Discovery. And then in each team's local market, there's a broadcaster that um, broadcasts the games just for people who live in that city. So if you're a Boston Celtics fan, for example, um, you would be, if you're in the Boston area, you would get that broadcaster there. So these are different teams in different cities. And um, in, a, in a lot of cases, they have been broadcast by a cable channel owner, uh, Diamond. Uh, but Diamond uh, yes. went into bankruptcy uh, in large part because uh, its owner took on a lot of debt uh, while there was cord cutting happening, and now these rights are really uh, potentially up for grabs. All right, Bloomberg's Jerry Smith for that. Bloomberg reporting, thank you very much. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. Ed Ludlow here in San Francisco. A quick check-in on the markets. We've reversed direction on the NASDAQ 100, down 1.4%. We're down in five of the last six sessions at the index level. A big part of this is sort of the macro concern. There's some jitters in the banking sector, some worries about China's economy. But as we will tell you about later in the program, some, some weakness in software, particularly in the earnings story and the outlook for the rest of this year, that's weighing on the NASDAQ 100, very tech-heavy, and at different corners, of it, some high multiple software names, they're trading lower. The other name that we're continuing to watch, of course, is Tesla. Some movement to the downside in the last couple of sessions. The surprise news 24 hours ago, which we hit hard on this show, was Zach Kirkcom stepping down after four years at CFO, as CFO, 13 years in the company, trying to find out the reason why. The replacement, Tesla's current chief accounting officer, who's also going to keep his current post in addition to his new gig. We had ARK Invest Kathy Wood on the program yesterday. Here's what she thought about that, that news. It's a tough job. It's a tough, tough job. So I, uh, I guess 13 years was a, a really good run for Zach and can't say enough good things about him and what he did for Tesla. Do but you... I think he trained his successor well. For more, let's bring in Bloomberg's Dana Hole, who leads our coverage of everything Elon Musk, but particularly Tesla. Let's be honest. Uh, surprised that Zach left Tesla. Vebav Taneja named as the CFO and chief accounting officer. And you and I sat there and thought, we don't know much about this guy, do we? <laughs> we really don't. And the announcement was weird. I mean, we learned about this in a filing on Monday, but the change was made on Friday. And the regulatory filing from Tesla says that Taneja is going to keep his current job as CAO and then basically adding CFO to his duties. So the guy now has two jobs. In your Bloomberg story, you write, Tesla's new CFO indeed has two jobs and a lot of question marks. What are some of those question marks? Yeah, he's just not super well known. Known. I mean, a, a lot of investors have never met him. He wasn't he wasn't like on stage at Investor Day. He came up through PricewaterhouseCoopers, which is Tesla's outside auditing firm, for 17 years. He was at Solar City. He joined Tesla after the acquisition of Solar City. But he's just not someone who is super well known to the shareholder base. Um, he's only spoken on one earnings call, and that was in early 2019. That's right. I was going to say I, I recognized the name from one earnings call. He came through Solar City 2016 corporate controller and now he he kind of has this key job because 
Elon Musk is the CEO, but he's very busy. And in the last four years, Zach has really been a shining light. Just explain to our audience who are less familiar with Zach Kirkhorn the role he's played at Tesla, beyond just being a pencil-pushing CFO. Sure. So I think there's like this trend in corporate America where the CFO really has a lot of business and operational expertise. And Zach was very intimately involved in all aspects of the business. He had a lot of direct reports. He was quite keen on improving profit margins and growing Tesla's revenue through other things like Tesla insurance and software. And he spoke quite a lot on the earnings calls. And he was often the kind of like yin to Musk's yang or whatever you want to call it. Like, you know, Musk would make this bombastic pronouncement and then Zach would either walk it back or provide more context. He was very measured and he spoke at great length. And those are just big shoes to fill. And, you know, by all accounts, um, I think what's interesting is that Zach is barely 40. I believe he's 39. And, um, I mean, that's that's pretty young age to retire. He's got a lot of money, and he can Quite. he can he can do whatever he wants. So I'm very curious to see what he does next. Uh, Donna, uh, you are excellent at digging deep into the regulatory filings in, in the documents we do have available, and you did unearth some information about Tanaja, his association with Tesla's efforts in India. Just tell us a little bit about what you learned. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of speculation about when Tesla will en will enter the India market, and Tanaja's name is on a filing that just sort of shows that they have, have started to try to at least get an office there. All right, Bloomberg's Dana Hole reporting everything we know so far about Tesla's new CFO, but I'm sure we'll learn a lot more in the weeks and months to come. Meanwhile, another Elon Musk company, Elon Musk's brain implant company, Neuralink, has raised $280 million to develop its technology. The startup announced the funding round in a post on Musk's X social network, the round led by Founders Fund, the venture capital firm backed by billionaire Peter Thiel. Now, more from our conversation with ARK Invest's Kathy Wood, who says the SEC may approve multiple spot Bitcoin ETFs at the same time, reversing an earlier view that her firm would be the first in line to get potential approval for the long-awaited product. Have a listen. I think the SEC, if it's going to approve a Bitcoin ETF, will approve more than one uh, at, at once. Uh, so then, uh, again, because most of these essentially will be the same, and it will come down to marketing, communicating the message. You know, we've been putting out our uh, Bitcoin monthly for the for the last uh, year. Uh, we are now starting a Bitcoin um, brainstorming session. Uh, our first one we launched last Thursday. Uh, so we're trying to get the word out there that, uh, you know, our research is deep and we've been doing it since 2015 when we gained our first exposure to GBTC. We were the first public asset manager to gain uh, exposure to Bitcoin at all in 2015. That's exactly where I want to go. The Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, known by its ticker, GBTC. If you look at ARCW, for example, your ARC Next Generation Internet ETF, right now I see GBTC as the third largest holding. If we are in a situation where the SEC does give its blessing for a spot Bitcoin ETF, would you plan to sell out of GBTC and buy one of these physically backed funds? 
Um, I cannot talk about what we would and would not do. And in fact, uh, uh, our compliance team is, uh, um, you know, giving us marching orders not to talk very much about this filing and uh, its aftermath at all. So just the fact that we filed with our partner 21 shares is is as far as as I can go. Fair I'm sorry, enough. Katie. Fair enough. No, <laughs> I was expecting something along those lines. Uh, I am curious to get your take on the regulatory temperature right now, because in addition to this rush of spot Bitcoin ETF filings that we've seen, there's also been sort of a race that's unfolding for an Ether futures ETF. There's been a ton of filings to that effect, and not specific to those funds. But do you sense that the moon music around the SEC and what their appetite to allow these products to launch has changed in the last several months? Well, I think that uh, that the two other branches of government, the judicial branch and the legislative branch, uh, are, are giving uh, the SEC pause uh, because the SEC is losing cases in court. That was Kathy Wood of ARK Invest. Wow, as Tuesdays goes, it's a busy one. Let's get to another story. Apple began testing its next-gen laptop processor, setting the stage for the release of its most powerful MacBook Pro ever, which will come next year. The new machine represents the latest advance by the company's in-house chip efforts and could help entice consumers back to a Mac lineup that's fallen in sales. All right, coming up here on Bloomberg Technology, investing in Vintech and disrupting capital markets. What it means for European VCs and the outlook, of course, on AI. All that and more next with Rana Yared, Balderton Capital. Quickly, we're looking at shares also of Snowflake. We talked about Datadog earlier in the uh, program, giving that weak outlook for the third quarter. Datadog is down by the most on record, 18.8%, biggest percentage decliner on the Nasdaq 100, but it is dragging other software names with it. Look at Snowflake down almost 7%. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.
time for VC Spotlight. Today we're going to look closely at the UK and European startup scene with a focus on fintech and what's happening in the world of AI. Balderton general partner Rana Yared joins us from London. Balderton's been investing in European tech for 22 years, raised more than $4.5 billion to deploy across early and growth stage startups. Good morning, good afternoon where you are, Rana. Welcome to Bloomberg Technology. Europe's an interesting one. You know, not just geographical, but economic variants across the continent. Sector level, where are you spending most of your focus right now in, in Europe? First of all, thank you so much for having me on your show this morning. It's a great pleasure to be here. Look, sector-wise, Balderton, as you said, is 22 years old, and so we are a generalist firm. We try to spend our time across the perennial sectors, if I can call them that, so fintech, the large swaths of enterprise tech consumer, but also you know, have the ability to be very targeted to the sectors that are most prevalent and relevant in Europe at any given moment. Um, me personally, I still spend a lot of my time in fintech, given that that is the roots that I have over the course of my career first as a partner at Goldman Sachs and now at, at Balderton. The firm also spends a lot of time on what one might call deep tech. So just this morning, Morgan Stanley wrote a piece where they mentioned specifically that Europe was distinguishing itself in deep, deep tech. You know, that is an area of continued interest for, for the whole firm. If, if we run with fintech as an example, which cities have the highest concentration of talent and entrepreneurship right now in the fintech space across Europe and the UK? It's exactly where you would expect it. So London continues to be a leading light in innovation with respect to fintech, particularly fintech that's focused on capital markets and institutions, which, by the way, when you think about the wallet share, uh, companies that serve institutional financial services are absolutely dwarfing the wallet share of the SME and consumer financial services together. So that's a very important piece that's based out of London. And we've seen over the course of of the last five to six years, a real rise in fintech talent, not only in Germany, which everyone talks about, but also in, in Paris. And indeed, um, quite a lot of financial services talent has relocated to Paris over the last five to six years. And when those individuals are thinking about the companies to start, they're actually just doing them exactly where, where they are. Rana, which are the areas that you do not like that you're avoiding? That's a great question. So um, as a firm, we actually don't make any investments in life sciences or biomedical sciences. And the reason for that is because we think those are specialist fields that actually require PhDs, and none of us have those PhDs. And so you know, a healthy dose of humility keeps us away from, from those areas in particular. One of the big names that we talk about on this program, Bloomberg Technology, coming out of London is Revolut, right? Especially in the fintech scene. Its latest audit for 2022, I think, comes next month. You were an early investor. The firm was an early investor. What's your assessment of Revolut right now? I mean, we're incredibly proud to have been an early investor in, in Revolut. We've been with Nikolai and the teams together since the start of, of the journey. Um, our assessment is that we're proud to be shareholders and um, not, no longer being on the board of the firm. We, like you, look forward to the, uh, the audit at 2022 numbers. Many, many column inches and, and, and media articles have also covered the leadership of Revolut. Are you confident in them? Do, do you think a change is needed to continue to scale and, and work to grow that startup? And we continue to have every faith in 
in Nikola, you know, as has been well shown from the 2021 audited fi financials and the guidance that they provided with respect to 22 in those financials, the company has continued to grow at an amazing pace since the last round that, that, that they did. And so if the results are the proof of, of the pudding, then in, indeed our faith is very well placed. The other sort of bigger theme that we talk about here on BTEC is UK and AI. The Prime Minister, other government ministers really talking up. The UK is a place to do, to do development in the field of AI. Have you had any interaction with the PM's office and any sort of understanding of, of what the big picture is there? Yeah, so I personally have not had that interaction, but but the firm has. And in some respect, the UK government is kind of stating what is exceptionally clear to those who have been in academia in, in the UK for a long time. So um, Cambridge and Oxford are centers of, of excellence. Obviously, DeepMind came from there. The autonomous driving car wave comes out of that center of excellence. Um, Oxford um, Innovation Endeavors, I think formerly called OSI, also has had a number of companies come out of, of their labs that focus on deep tech and AI. And so the academic scene has been unbelievably rich. And then commercializing that that research was only the natural next next step. So it doesn't su surprise us to the least that this has turned into a national initiative. There's a company in your portfolio that really caught my eye, Van Moof, the Dutch electric bike company. We've written a lot about mobility in Europe uh, at Bloomberg Technology. What went wrong there? Look, I think we just start with like the very obvious point, which is that venture is not a zero risk business. And certainly we don't confuse ourselves into thinking that that it is. Um, Van, Van Moof had a mission that we believed in, frankly, that was deeply needed in the world, which is that micro mobility is very important towards climate change. I think, unfortunately, they got caught in the challenges that are associated with COVID. Um, the bicycles were not made in, in Europe. The supply chains were incredibly long. Um, you know, they had the misfortune of having bicycles on the um, on the Panamax ship that basically got stuck in the Suez Canal. Um, and despite all efforts from everyone uh, to come with a different out outcome, not least of which because it's people's li livelihoods, the final decision from the shareholders and the board was that um, the supply chain issues were just too challenging to continue on. The, the news for our audience was that an Amsterdam court declared Van Moof's Dutch legal entities bankrupt on Monday, which is why I asked about it. But as you say, venture, not a zero-risk business. Balderton Capital General Partner, Rani Yared, really good to get the perspective of what's happening in European tech. Thank you. Spotify's AI-powered DJ is going global just six months after debuting in North America. Spotify listeners in countries like Sweden, Australia and Singapore will be able to access the personalized DJ that comes up with curated music selections that includes spoken word commentary by artificial intelligence. Ziad Sultan, Spotify's VP of personalization, joins us now from our New York studios. The thing about the AI DJ is it's multifaceted. Let's start with the recommendations aspect. The technology is taking your, your listening history, the data from your profile, to another level. Explain how. So thank you for having me. We are very excited about this product because what we are doing with the AI DJ is really transforming the way people listen to music. What we have created 
is a personalized AI guide for you, for every single user, that knows you and your music taste better than anything before, and can therefore create this lineup that is really special with commentary that explains to you why you are listening to this particular song or track or artist, and also tells you why you should care, right? So you're more open to discovery. And by doing so, with this stunning realistic voice and this form factor of an AI DJ just for you, uh, it is able to also learn from you better than ever before. And so it takes this metaphor we've always had with Spotify of creating, you know, we've had this metaphor of what if you had your own personalized DJ, what would they do for discovery? They would create Discover Weekly, they would curate your homepage, your daily mix. But this metaphor, is now a reality. So that's why we're so excited to have built this product and it actually recommends better and learns better than anything we've done before. Users of, of Spotify around the world will be used to seeing lyrics or even video now when you have your favorite tracks playing in playlist form. But at the technology level, this is a partnership with OpenAI that provides a lot more information about the artist or, or the song. Explain how it works. So this is taking generative AI on two levels. One is in the commentary itself, the facts about the art, uh, about the track or the artist, why should you care about the song, what's important about it. So that is one aspect of generative AI we're using. And the other one is, of course, this incredibly realistic voice that brings a lot of passion and a lot of charisma and uh, a lot of warmth to the recommendations of the DJ. So we are taking those two aspects of generative AI and we are putting them in the hands of music experts inside Spotify, which are our music editors, they are some of the most knowledgeable and passionate people about music in the world. So we take this generative AI technology, including in-house and uh, some of the work we've done with external partners such as OpenAI, and we're taking that technology and in the hands of our um, music experts, it actually brings something new to both listeners and to creators. For listeners, it expands yes. their horizon, and for creators, it introduces them to new audiences. You know, Ziad, when you announced uh, last summer that you were acquiring Synantic, many were like, you know, what's going on here? How does this end up in the platform? That's the final part, right, of the AI DJ, a voice component. Why did you do that? Well, very much so. We did that because um, when you think about our mission, it is really to connect listeners and artists, and very much what we do is audio, right? So when you are doing that, you're listening to this new song, um, the best possible way to introduce you to a new song is to give you the audio commentary, the reason why uh, you are listening to that song, why you should care, and also it gives you a chance to try it out. And we have found in the data, since we have started rolling out our beta, that users who hear commentary from that stunning realistic voice from Sonantic technology that we acquired, when you hear that commentary, you are much more likely to try something new. And when you are more likely to try something new, your lives get better as a user, the artist benefits because they grow their audience. And this is happening in a way that has never happened before because in great part of that voice technology uh, that you mentioned. You know, I point one thing out, Ziad, that this is still in beta phase in many countries. The early rollout, it's global, but there are many countries that don't have it. Come back when the full rollout happens. Ziad Sultan, Spotify's VP of personalization, thank you. Now, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. We're only two days into the week, and my goodness, what a week it's been. So don't forget, check out the podcast where we will recap everything from the program on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, and of course, on the Bloomberg platforms. The earnings season continues. There are 
big interviews coming up here on the show this week. From San Francisco, this is Bloomberg Technology. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.